The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. It's a pretty commonly known fact that the housing market is fucked. Out of control prices, average and barely livable places rented for mind-blowing sums, people living in garages, a legacy of leaky buildings, and some god-awful pre-2008 apartments. The problems are well known, and a lot of hand-wringing has gone on. Today's guest is someone who thinks the situation is screwed. He is also a large-scale property developer, and he's doing something about it. Mark Todd is the co-founder of Ockham Residential. You'll know their apartment developments. They are the good ones, built out of materials that look like they will last, in sensible spots near transport, and with high-quality density at their heart. Over the years, Ockham have helped create a more compact city by doing things like advocating for ditching requirements for car parks and more importantly maybe, by building the kind of apartments people actually want to live in and have as neighbours. The pace of their building is going up with hundreds of apartments across a handful of developments underway and more planned. But unusually for a successful property developer, Mark Todd also speaks out on the unfair system that helps property owners win outsize wealth and extends gaps between the haves and the have-nots. Their company is pioneering build-to-rent Kiwi partnerships, offering more Kiwi build options than a bank manager might recommend, and doing more give back through their foundation, the Ockham Collective. But it might be the example they're setting and the uncomfortable conversations they're starting that will have the most impact. To talk the journey, the mission, and changing that conversation, Mark Todd joins us now by Zoom. Tiakwe, thank you for joining us, Mark. <laughs> Kia ora, Simon. Thanks for that very kind introduction. Hey, well, I mean, I think as anyone who lives in Auckland and Tamaki Makoto would have seen, you know, your your buildings and developments are a bright light in a pretty shitty uh, housing market. So it's a real pleasure to get to chat to you. Hey, t- t- tell me, how was it that you got into the industry in the first place? Um, I, I did a little bit of reading and saw that you'd studied science, got a job as a meteorologist, but then what happened? Yeah, well, yeah, I graduated many years ago um, with a BSc in pure mathematics, and um, I did actually secure a job as a to go on and work with a mech service and enter their master's program, which is uh, 
the normal stepping stone to to forecast the weather. And I went away after securing that job on my summer holiday, and I don't know. I just probably, in retrospect, when I made those when I made one of those key decisions that like sliding doors moment, I didn't turn up to the job after the university summer holidays and ended up being a bit of a bum and labourer and spent many years surfing in my early 20s and windsurfing. And um, I've never actually held down a job. I've been self-employed. I say those first four or five years, it was just labouring to keep make ends meet. And where, where were you living? So you got the kind of job in the city and went, oh, nah. <laughs> I don't so know. I, I pieced together my personality. I think in my, you know, I'm in my late forties now. Looking back, I, I think I just intuitively didn't really believe a lot of what I was told. And you know, I was a fairly successful student, and um, I don't know. I, I just think that I don't. Yeah, I didn't really believe what I was told, and I wasn't highly motivated to to keep up with the Joneses or do what I was meant to do as a top class student. Basically. And how did you get into building houses? You started out kind of labouring, and then, yeah, how did you start working with your your brother and and, and getting into houses? Well, um, my brother's actually a qualified boat builder, and um, he went off to London for a few years and came back when I was sort of 25-ish. And uh, by that stage, I'd I'd sort of ended up running a business painting houses. I spent five months in Australia, and when I came back, I needed some money, and I painted one of my mate's houses, and did a good job, and the next person said, oh, can you paint my house? And then sort of three and a half years later, I'm still painting houses. It's my, my job for income. And my brother came back, and then we did painting and renovating. And so he'd, he'd been working in London as a builder. And then in 1997, after doing you know a few years contracting, um, we did our first spec house. Um, finished that like two weeks before the um, Asian financial crisis, which was a bit of fun. And we went on to build about 60 or 70 townhouses between 1997 and when the GFC happened in 2008. So I like to describe it. This is my arrival here as a as a builder, sort of an ad hoc concatenation of historic events, really, rather than a plan. Yeah. What was it that you enjoyed about, you know, the work? Because um, building houses and painting houses and labouring, it's... Hard, hard, hard work. And the, you know, uh, hourly wage at the beginning there wouldn't have been the same as a white-collar meteorologist wage, I imagine. What what, what did you enjoy about it and what attracted you to making houses happen and, and doing that work? Well, I, I I don't know. I've always had a, you know, a strong work ethic. Always, you have to have a job to, to, um, to keep yourself in a flat and, have a beer and, and go out for dinner. And so I didn't really choose to be a labourer per se. I just, um, I don't know, in retrospect, I just stepped out for a while, worked out what I want to do. I put my, you know, my mum was very disappointed for a few years with her, you know, her son, you know, my other friends got jobs and working in the IT industry and getting into, you know, website development in the mid-90s because um, I knew a lot of people in that sort of arena um, from a mathematics background. Um but once I actually started building houses, it's an incredibly um, satisfying experience, you know, getting a digger on site, digging the foundations, putting in the steel, laying the block work, putting the roof on, finishing the house and finally doing the landscaping, which I always enjoyed. And then, you know, it was a hugely satisfying experience. But, you know, 
after 10 years or so, I'm going to do that. It's a bit like Groundhog Day. Oh, yeah, foundations again. <laughs> and it is hard work, you know. Still got a few, yeah. you know, shoulder issues and stuff from, from being a builder. I eventually got qualified as a carpenter in my mid-30s when the, the regulations changed. And from 97 through till the, you know, global financial crisis, that wasn't the glory days of building either, was it, in terms of um, the houses and townhouses being built in, in Auckland? Um, it like, uh, what was it like starting in one financial crisis? And then what was it about the next financial crisis that um, decided that you needed to do things differently than things had been being done? Well... So I, I got a double major in mathematics and philosophy, and um, so I've always, I suppose, I describe myself as an academic at heart, and I, um, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. So I, I did the floor plans and elevations of all the townhouses that we built. So I had an interest in you know design and planning and architecture, and you know I realised fairly early on how wasteful it was the type of urban infill subdivision that was, that was happening, you know, well, it had happened through the 80s and 90s and accelerated, you know, after the turn of the millennium. And um, I, 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 before I started Ockham, the last two or three years, I was pushing the council to issue some non-complying consents for, um, you know, for three-level apartments. And, um, you know, that was, you know, some of those, well, two of those developments in particular were case studies that were used, relied on, quite heavily during the um, unitary plan hearing. So I suppose I'd, I'd, quite early on I'd been railing against poor outcomes and unproductive use of um, of prime high amenity urban land. So just I think just intuitively it's my nature. I always, I go, why the fuck is something that way? Like, why can't it be better, you know? And I think that the real issue right across the the property sector and and the I don't know, economic analysis in general, we, we, we're stuck in like, you know, an ideology and a lack of ambition rather than a, than a, you know, a concrete certainty that things are going wrong. I think part of the reason things are going wrong is because there's no ability to talk about all the different solutions there are in housing or wealth distribution or ways of, you know, taxation. We've got, we're living in a bit of a, um, uh, well, there's a collision going on between technology driving wealth concentrations and, you know, our political institutions being quite weak relatively, you know, to the point where you've got absurdities like my company paying more tax than someone like Google or Facebook in this country. It's, I mean, how does that happen? You know, there's no excuse for that except, you know, you know. Yeah, we've just kind of it's, well, it's a reflection that wealth influences politics. And it's it's pretty extreme, and no one really wants to tackle that that obvious fact. Yeah, let's let's jump into that kind of macro piece. Um, you know, now that you're at a scale with Ockham, you know, to really lead some of these conversations, it's amazing. But just to get how you got there, so what was that ambition? So you kind of identified that people were just ambling along and didn't have an ambition to be doing these things better, and were just doing the kind of easy infill that had been done before the unitary plan. You know what? How hard or easy was it to go about building high-quality, you know, dense city um, developments? And what was that kind of ambition that you started Ockham with to do that? Well, in, in this in the suburban environment, and I'm talking, you know, everywhere outside the CB, CBD, whether you're in, 
you know, Mount Eden, Mount Wellington, Pamua, Torbay, anywhere in Manukau, Onihunga. Yes, you know, all this existing um, suburban environment, which is really the heart of Auckland, there was a density rule that says, oh, well, one house per 400 square metres. And I'm going, well, if, you, if you're going to have 400 square metres of, you know, high amenity urban land and you only can build one house on it, it's going to be a fucking big one. And so we spent 30 years tooling industry. All it knew how to do was build expensive townhouses. And the only question was, was an expensive townhouse in Pamir worth 850 you know, back in 2006, or whether it was an expensive house in Mount Eden worth $1.8 million back in 2006. There was literally no one- and two-bedroom units built in the suburban environment for 30 years because they were, you know, the density controls, the best way to put it, they economically precluded the production of smaller, more affordable one- and two-bedroom units in the existing urban environment. And that led has led to, you know, quite marked socioeconomic stratification, you know, in, in Auckland's land, you know, suburban land market you know suburbs are, are highly graded around income and so that's that's one aspect that's a problem and the other aspect's a problem is it really you know you've got a lot of high value large houses occupied by one or two people it's not widely known but the average size of an Auckland household household is like 1.9 people I think something like that 1.8 and yet up until the unitary plan the only type of housing we built was large three four or five bedroom townhouses you know, and a handful of low-quality apartments in the CBD. Yeah, that, that looked like remand prisons. Like we had, <laughs> yeah. had set up this situation, we're all up Nelson Street. They looked like kind of dystopian future uh, apartment buildings the big bad wolf could blow over. Yeah. And then <laughs> that was that was New Zealand's kind of um, experience of apartments being built and nothing in the suburbs. And so looking at that environment, what led you in the at the start of you know, the global financial crisis to go, I'll tell you what, I'll meet up with a mate and we'll do something completely different. Well, uh, so when the GFC come, we didn't get in any trouble financially, but on the other hand, we had uh, around eight builders working full-time, my brother and I at that point. We were doing six or seven townhouses a year. Um, we just, we just, there was just no money available at all. So it's not like we got into trouble, but we had no business. Um, luckily, Benjamin, who's my best mate, we studied together at university. He went off and had an international banking career. And at the time, he was working in the US. Um, and we'd often, we'd kept in touch. We were best mates through our whole life, even though we'd often lived in different continents. And um, we decided to set up Ockham. Um, and no one wanted to buy, the, you know, apartment sites. So to be fair, I had a, a very, very unusual entry into the apartment sector. I'd had you know, 10 or 12 years um, learning the ropes about planning, the legal side of planning, learning a bit about what best practice density might be. Um, and our first first apartment building, the Ockham building by Eden Park, we entered that from a with a mindset, well, Ben was like, well, don't Benjamin said, well, don't worry if we can't sell it, we'll just own it. And I mean, whoever gets to, to build their first apartment block on those terms. So, um and it was a pleasure to build. Bracewell Construction built it for us. It was the easiest project that i ever been involved in, and I didn't have to build it with my own hands. I got a huge sense of satisfaction. You know, in Kingsland, um, you know, there wasn't a good apartment block in there. The average price of an apartment block in Kingsland when it was finished was about 4,300 a square metre. Um, 
we ended up selling the Ockham building for 7000 a square metre at the time, and we proved that people would pay for quality, which, you know, that was probably the thing that I was the most proud of about that building. Like, build a quality building, people want it, people will pay for it. And I, and I think that's one of the things that I've taken the most satisfaction out, that we've, with a handful of other players, have been, you know, championing better outcomes for, for Tamaki Makoro. It's a beautiful city with a world-class landscape. Why isn't its buildings better? It's mostly through lack of ambition. And particularly in the high-density sector, most players come at it from a legal or finance background, and they don't really care. Um, they don't have the skills, and you get you know, large-scale apartment projects that are really um, geared around how much money can I make out of this bit of land now with no no waiting or consideration at all for you know, what are clearly high-risk off-site spill and economic vandalism effects of poor-quality large-scale apartment developments. Witness, you know, the whole of Newton, um, Hobson Street, Nelson Street, you know, these whole vast high-value areas in Auckland that are, they've literally been economically vandalised by large-scale apartments. And the claptrap that was coming out of the unitary plan, it's my land, it's private land, I'll do what I want, I don't want fucking any urban design reviews and blah, blah, blah. It's just so clear that a bad quality large-scale development destroys economic opportunity and urban amenity if it's not done well. So that was a, you know, you can see that gets me fired up a little bit. Just just this attitude that it's private land, you know, we can do whatever we want. Like it's it's just not true and it's unsophisticated and it's not a mature way way to, to discuss urban regeneration and what, what a thriving, best practice, dense city looks like. Well, well, tell me about some of the principles that you bring to the building of your um, of your developments. As you know, from an outsider, you can kind of know when um, one's gone up because it's I don't know built out of something like brick, or it looks like it does. It's not going to have to be pulled down in thirty years and done again. And um, you know, there's amenity like there's a pool and there's the wonderful um, welcoming gates. And you know, there are a couple of kind of themes in the last three or four developments that you can kind of see. What 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 are those kind of themes that you bring or principles you bring to developments? When we first set up Ockham, then before we built our first building, I don't know how it came up, but we did set ourselves three guiding design principles. The first was we wanted our buildings to be distinctly residential, because up to that point. You know, you could see it in some of those places I just mentioned. You could, it's hard to tell whether a building was commercial or residential. So we want a distinctly residential architecture, you know, and we express that with fine-grained detail in general that, that, are, that appeals to, you know, humanity. Like, I think a lot of modern architecture gets caught up in engineering and minimalism, whereas what people actually want to feel is like, I can see the expression someone's put some thought into it, so... Fine human scale detail is something that we, we use. The second um, principle is we want to use inclusive architecture. By that, I mean we, we want to design buildings that nine out of ten people walk past and go, that's, oh, that's a lovely building. You know, the converse of that is, you know, we get a bit of a mixed review from the architectural community, but I'm not interested whether I get nine out of ten architects liking my building. I want the communities and public to like the buildings. So, you know, I want our buildings to be inclusive. You know, perhaps a little bit quirky, a bit human, use materials that people like that are permanent, um, which brings us to the last um, of our design principles. We think there's an ethical obligation when you're doing high-density development with body corporates and commons 
to use as close to zero maintenance facades as possible. So we wanted to design buildings that, you know, minimise long-term maintenance costs, you know, um, and have facades that last and are permanent. So we pretty much only use brick, decorative precast concrete, um, and a bit of copper here and there. Um, so, yeah, for somehow intuitively we arrived at those principles. We've got a few other ones now. Ockham 2.0 is more, we're more interested about not so much how the, the building looks on the outside, but it's how it's experienced as you arrive home, whether it's through the front door on your bicycle or in a car park in the basement, how you circulate through the building. And we're really, really big on um, leaving common, you know, some conception of the commons in a project that at least there's, you know, high amenity, high value areas in an apartment project that are reserved for the commons where the community can change the use of that over time as the, you know, a building now that might have two or three babies in it and 20 years might have 30. Um, and so the, the common areas can be repurposed and reused. So I think there's, it's really important to leave a community um, facilities on site that are that are valuable and, and available to be repurposed as the community changes and, and grows over time. And, and with these, you know, the, the latest stream of big scale developments as well, you've had a really big proportion of Kiwi build availability. And is that kind of, you know, more availability than you'd need to get the, the good rates from the government? Or what's the kind of thinking behind making sure that there's such a big proportion of Kiwi build in these developments? Because it, it feels like, you know, you, you sell out every time without much trouble. You wouldn't have to do it from a business perspective. <laughs> No, but that's, you know, a lot of these apartment projects are, you know, two years in the planning, you know, until they get to market. So who knew the um, the market would be so strong, you know. Fifteen months ago, we all thought the sky was going to fall down when the, um, when the pandemic hit us. But no, we, probably 75% of our portfolio is focused on, I don't use the word affordable housing, but we build relatively affordable apartments. You know, even the Kiwi bill price points are still not affordable to, to a lot of people. Um, and I've I've really enjoyed, I get a huge amount of satisfaction in focusing on that area. Um, we've got a, a, a great partnership with the Maru Tuahu um, Collective um, that we will deliver our Kiwi bill program, and that's hugely satisfying. We've been working with Maru Tuahu for five years now. We've completed about 300 apartments, and there's another 300 or so coming with a, a few other large-scale opportunities in the pipeline. Um, but I think it's a good – the Kiwi Build Underwrite program actually was a success, and it's. Um, I think we've built more in the program than any other um, group. Uh, and it was good business on a risk-return basis. It's, um, it's pretty challenging now with construction and land prices where they are. The Kiwi Build price points have been left behind, so the Ford pipeline – will dry up very quickly without change of those price caps. But um, nonetheless, it's seeded some exceptionally high-quality um, outcomes, particularly in the um, collaborative space with EB and private sector players. It's not just Ockham and Maru Tuahu. There's um, some other beautiful developments going up as well with the other area around Auckland as well. We'll be back in just a minute to talk a little bit more with Mark Todd, co-founder at Ockham, about that situation around price in the housing market. Kia ora koutou katoa. Te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. 
As we find ourselves navigating a new outbreak and lockdown, everyone here at The Spinoff remains committed to bringing you quality independent journalism, which, of course, includes our coverage of COVID-19. It's not an exaggeration to say we couldn't do this work without the generous support of our members. So, if you'd like to help us keep Aotearoa informed, please visit thespinoff.co.nz slash members for more details and to donate today. And, uh, yeah, just before there, Mark, you mentioned that, you know, the price of these KiwiBuild developments hasn't kept pace with the market. And, you know, God, the amount of energy and time that goes into talking about price in Auckland housing market. And, you know, as someone who works in property, it must be exhausting um, for you. But what, you know, you're you're very unusual out of um, property developers in that you've taken a really strong position to say that um, the, the prices are ridiculous, but they're also not the full picture. Talk, talk me through how you've said that the prices in the housing market are actually a canary in the coal mine for bigger problems. Yeah, like a, it's a huge amount of, um, and rightly so, um, emphasis on housing and housing affordability. Um, but I think there's too little emphasis on, you know, there's two ways to make a house, uh, the cost of a house half the price it is now. One is to halve the price of the house, and the second is to double wages. And my view is it's much easier to have a 10-year program to do that for the bottom 65% of the population than have this myth that we're going to halve housing prices over the next 10 years. It's just not going to happen. And I think if you're really clear and have a look back through history, you know, up till the mid-90s, we were like the rest of the world, or like most Western countries. I think the average house was about three times, three and a half times family income. Um, the first decoupling occurred through the late 90s through all the way the first 10 years up to the GFC with, you know, financial instruments and subprime debt fueling asset bubbles, particularly housing, um, which led to the GFC. That was the first stage of the decoupling of of house prices to income. The response to that was, you know, literally to print print money for a further 10 years, which is rightly so. We did avoid um, 25% unemployment like you did see in Spain and Greece and a fair number of countries in, in Europe, I think the right response was to, to be honest, that money supply is arbitrary and governments, you know, the US government, I think, put out $700 billion in the market immediately and then continued to issue, you know, debt or, you know, fiscal expansion and still doing it now. And, and so, again, that, we just went on steroids for another, or the sugar for another 10 years to the point where now in Auckland, you know, house prices are eight or nine times the average family income heading towards 10. Um, and that, that's a fiscal a response largely. If you look at the correlation when money became easy to get and then free, you know, the dirty secret has been hugely beneficial to the top 1% and 0.1% current economic policy. And so they've had a win-win. The political narrative, we did this to help the poor working class to keep their jobs. But on the other hand, the working class has just become, you know, the hurdle to get into your own house has just become immense. While everyone on the very, very top, myself included, their wealth is, you know, it's 
there's no justification for the increase in, in the in the value of assets or the wealth that's that that's real wealth that's generated in terms of people that are already wealthy can sell those assets, leverage those assets to buy flash cars, to live happy lives, to pay for their kids to go to the best schools, to spend a hundred grand a year on international travel. You know, before the before COVID, there's just a real. I just really resent sitting in affordable housing conferences where the only topics we can talk about is the fucked RMA um, and how how rubbish, you know, how uncompetitive our, our construction costs are, you know, or our construction inputs. Yeah, that they, they, they can be improved. The RMA is actually fine. Construction costs, you know, are an issue in New Zealand, construction materials in particular. But aside from that, the, the real issue is it's a Bernie Sanders issue about fairness and, and the equal distribution of the vast wealth created by modern economies. As I say, it's, it's being concentrated by technology and an era that we live of a, you know, pretty much political dysfunction where our governments around the world find it really tough to, to weigh and value and consider and then act upon what's, what, what is in the public good when it comes to fiscal policy, tax, taxation policy, education policy. Well, like you say, it's the lack of a conversation that's happened about it is there has been this extraordinary period of money printing and that has gone in a kind of um, massive concentration to people who already owned assets. And the only reason that people have kept jobs has been it's been kind of crumbs have fallen off the the table of the people who already owned assets. But the amazing thing is that I, I see that is that after 10 years of this, anyone who owned assets 10 years ago or five years ago has seen them either double, triple or quadruple in value. Yet, no one seems to be saying, you know, with the exception of a few people like you, very few people in that asset-owning class seem to be saying, hey, yeah, look, we've all won lotto. We've all had these, you know, million-dollar gains that came out of nowhere. Maybe it's time we rebalance things. What do you, what kind of blowback do you get for taking these positions? Like, how popular are you at um, property developer conferences or with, um, you know, people in leafy suburbs for, for, for leading this kind of call? Well, I don't know. I mean, in the circles I, I move in, I like to, you know, I'm, I'm not an advocate for the sector per se of property development. Um, I think it's important to build houses. I just feel an obligation, I suppose. What I want to do is just broaden the public discourse around wealth inequality and particularly how it relates to housing because I do have specialist knowledge about housing delivered, you know. The nuts and bolts of it is that the, the billions of dollars of capital that are you know, allocated in land purchases and subdivisions around this country by the bigger players, it's all yesterday's, um, yesterday's knowledge, yesterday's ambition. It's a bit colonial and exploitative. All the lands and making the section and building the house is an afterthought. You make so much money rezoning a farm from urban to rural, creating the sections in a place that no one asks. In fact, in Auckland, we specifically asked for a quality compact city, and it should take 10 years to rezone the next farm at Pukekohe or Pukekawa or, you know, Silverdale or, you know, Pirata. We didn't ask for new cities and urban sprawl to be put in these places. So I think there's a you know, Tauranga is a classic example of the tail wagging the dong, as, as is Southern Lakes District, Wanaka and Queenstown. You've got sprawling 1960s-style housing estates going in in Aotearoa, which 
you know, everyone knows they're not best practice. And I, I, I do like to, probably the people that I piss off the most are the large-scale players that refuse to get on board with New Zealand's future, which is quality urban living, not exploitative sprawl that, cons- that is expensive, that lays heaps of costs collectively back onto the, the public for putting new schools, new roads, new police stations, new hospitals in places. We don't need to build new communities. Um, and, and where the real money, so I want the public to know the real money and why there's such big treating, beating drums in Wellington, supply and demand, release more greenfield land, the price of land will come down. It's such nonsense. There's just such a lot of money to be made in subdivision of you know, Greenfield's land, and that's where the institutional bias and lack of ambition with the big players that really needs to be questioned. You know, yeah. to go through our current portfolio, knock down one villa in in, in Greylin, thirty two new apartments going up. Morningside, take away one villa, put up thirty nine new apartments, no car parking next to a train station. You know, Avondale, seven story apartment block, four sausage block flats. Flats removed, 117 apartments going in. Manaki, only hunger, 210 apartments going in. 48 old-fashioned Housing New Zealand star block units being demolished. The densities available were always there, and the naysayers that said, oh, you couldn't possibly put 70% of the next 30 years of Auckland's population in the existing urban environment. You need to get rid of the rub. And all that nonsense had been proven wrong. You know, and I'm sick of all the focus still being about giving a Rolls-Royce ride to ruin Auckland with more sprawl and pay for pipes when it's costing, you know, the people that are doing the right thing, 10% of the cost of a seven-storey building to turn the water and power on. Let's get, get real about where the focus needs to be. There's just such a lot of disinformation and um, misinformation and actually, yeah, alternative facts peddled by the old-school players that are still addicted to making easy money off subdividing land. You know, it's hard work mm. building apartments. We have 130 people turn up today every site. You can do a $100 million subdivision with eight, you know, suit and ties, just haggling over plans and shit, not actually doing anything. Now, and the building houses comes comes later once the real money's been made. And from the outside, it's actually, you know, as an interested observer, it's actually kind of remarkable to me how many good things got into the unitary plan, considering how few examples there were of these things done well for people to point to and experience. And the growth that we've had since the unitary plan in the number of dwellings being consented and in the developments like yours going up, you know, there's there's some great kind of signs for, um, you, you know, the next 10 years might might get there if we can put some limits on the city and not just <laughs> sprawl all the way to Huntley and all the way up to um, Oriwa Strait. But how how do you see the kind of conversation moving? Do you see hope in the way that, you know, there's more people doing better developments? Uh, do you see that Aucklanders are buying better houses? I mean, one of my most interesting things I saw in the research for talking to you was that one of your biggest customer groups are over 60s. Yes. <laughs> I think most of us have travelled, you know, particularly, well, we've all travelled and we go and see these cities. There's no expectation of owning a car in a city, Melbourne or Sydney or, or London or <laughs> New York or, or anywhere, you know, go to anywhere, the best practice, mainly, you know, Central Europe, Scandinavia, Italy. 
Italy, you, funny thing is, you go through, you know, olive groves and rural farmland. Next thing, that the, the, the town is literally three- and four-story apartments. Yeah, you'd find that in, in the most rural environment. There's just no such thing as sprawl. I think, I think I'm, I'm hugely optimistic. Aucklanders have really taken up. You know, uh, my view is that Tamaki Makaurau is probably the most vibrant city in Australasia in terms of its growth and aspiration. It is actually maturing. I think it's, 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 there's sort of an inflection point that's been passed. We understand we, we, we're throwing our shackles off. We identify as we want to be the most diverse, interesting city in the Pacific. You know, we're not trying to be like a European city or an American city. We've got a great, well, you know, it's really tough. I want a big shout out to all the people in hospice sector, but it's a great food and dining scene up here in Auckland and the bars and there's lots of music going on. We're involved there with the Auckland Collective, I think. It's a really vibrant city and the streetscapes, to be fair, big shout out to the Auckland City Council and Iki Panuku. They're doing a great job with and AT, you know, restricted my comments to praise for AT to its cycle network, which they're investing a huge amount of money. And there's a lot of good stuff going on. And it is, people are getting on board. They're not afraid of density. They want to be able to walk places and they want to go to good, live a good urban life that doesn't involve an hour and a half, two hours every day in a car. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I feel that there's a lot of hope and that, you know, the kind of change in living that your developments are one of the better examples of is a big is a big part of that. And like you say, overseas, you know, the only thing that would make your development stand out is probably that they weren't that big. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, they're at the, the biggest kind of size of, of, of the scale. What, what is, what's your advice for people who, you know, want to, want to help build better or want to um, get involved in, in doing things in a better way? Like, you know, do you, need, do you need the scale? Do you need the business partner who, who can put up the money that it doesn't even matter if you sell to get started? Or, you know, how, how is it possible to, to do better? You've got to give things a go. I mean, I have a high degree of, um, <laughs> I don't know, belief in a, a vacuous tautology that most people never do anything because they never do anything. Um, so just, just give it a go. Like, I, I'm a big fan of a concept of reshaping or reimagining the world. And I think that's, yeah, just just give things a go. Talk to people. You'll find there's more people than you think that are aspirational. Just that the, that's why it's what I like, you know, forgive me, but this is a genuine bit of praise. That's why I love the spin-off. It's a genuine effort to broaden the public discourse, to, to give some bandwidth to just the breadth of any solution or the world of possibilities. It's... It's so large yet, which mainstream media has just arbitrarily narrowed everything down that you, you're not allowed to think and analyse and be critical. I think get stuck in, do things local. Don't try and be too ambitious. The older I get, probably the, the more interested I am is just doing small, discrete things that matter. It's bit by bit. Systemic change is so hard, you know, revolution, that sort of stuff. Just do what you can. I'm not going to be use the word be kind, but be, be empathetic. Try and be as considerate as you can. Yeah, there's, the world's full of possibility. Uh, the older I get, the more I believe that. Uh-huh. And um, as a final thought, like, what will success be for you personally and for Ockham? We, we just, yeah, want to, want to supposed to be copied, I suppose, as success for us. You know, we, we, we want to build buildings that last, um, communities that thrive. Just change, I think, would be a legacy for us. Just, yeah, we were, we were part of that. We're not the only player up here. Um, helping out, and and there was a bunch of really motivated academics, lobby groups, 
people, like Generation Zero is incredibly influential in the unitary plan. Big shout out to the two pennies, Penny Hulse and Penny Pirrit that were influential in standing up, you know, for things like getting rid of density controls that economically precluded smaller affordable units in high value suburbs, getting rid of car parking standards. So there's, there's, you know, a lot of staff at, you know, academic institutions. There was a real debate went on. That's the annoying thing is it was a democratically consulted, you know, process that was voted on four years. We asked for a quality compact city. I fucking want it. Like, I'm sick of big, bigger companies distorting and peddling fake news down in Wellington about the rub and the impossibility of you know, building quality compact city and that the RMA is holding things up and it's the, it's our nemesis. It's just, it's not. Just get shit done. We don't need to keep changing the rules. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, for sharing the story of the journey and, yeah, can't wait to see what happens um, in, in continuing to lead by lead by example and make these, make these things and show what can be done within the rules. Thank you for joining us, Mark Todd, co-founder at Ockham Residential. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you, Simon. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, awesome. Thank you to Tarahe Butler for producing. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for having us along and take care. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound, brought to you by The Spinoff and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.